You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This morning, uh, we have a wonderful opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which we do on the last Sunday of each month at least. And uh, so we look forward to that as we set our hearts upon what God's Word tells us as we continue in this series uh, through the letter of, to the Philippians called the Epistle of Joy. Uh, and this series is called Connoisseurs of Happiness. So we've really been focusing on our, our natural desire to be happy and the ultimate happiness that only comes through faith in Christ and his ongoing fellowship with us and his work in our hearts and the way that he is at work in our church. And we will continue focusing on that this morning. Uh, This morning, our passage, I think, really suits me well as a person because in this passage, there's a ton that we just don't know. And the longer that I'm a Christian, I feel more and more like there's a ton that I just don't know. And even in that, though, I continue to find over and over again big truths that are helpful to me. And that's what these couple of verses bring to us this morning. Questions that we don't have answers to, that I don't have answers to, but some big truths that I hope will encourage our hearts this morning as we consider what it means for us as a church to labor together with joy. This sermon is coming right on the heels of last Sunday's text, which focused on the local church and what it means for us to to be together and how we should think about ourselves as as believers, uh, as a family. And this morning, we're going to continue that line of, of thinking and believing by noticing three keys to fulfilling our mission together as a church, as we labor together with joy. And so you'll find along these three points that there are a number of things that we don't know, but we're more concerned about grasping the big truths that God has for us this morning. Here's the first big truth or the first key to laboring together with joy as a church. We must learn to and insist on agreeing together in unity We get really to to the basics of church life this morning in this text, because as I said, there's a lot that we don't know. Look at verse 2, just just verse 2 to begin with. Paul says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, I don't know who these two people are other than they seem to be prominent Christian women in the church at Philippi, and for some reason that I don't know, they are struggling to live in harmony together. There's some kind of conflict or struggle for them to agree together. But here's the big truth. Paul urges this kind of agreement or resolving of their conflict because as we see many places in Scripture, in particular the New Testament and the writings of Paul, the conflict, and it seems the kind of conflict, whatever it was that Euodia and Syntyche were experiencing, is really detrimental to the church's life and mission. Listen to what we read in Matthew 16. It says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, 
And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. We're given this incredible truth in Matthew 16 that reminds us that the church of Jesus Christ is so under his care that no one and nothing will be able to stop her, the church. Local churches all around the world making up that big universal church, the bride of Christ for whom he died and he, he is working in and among and he has great plans that he's working out in us and for us and for the world. Those plans cannot be thwarted. They cannot be stopped. But nevertheless, while the church is ultimately invincible, she also exists in a delicate balance and harmony. And we all know that this is true, don't we? Because I think every person who has been involved in our church over these, wow, 10 years or so, you have probably felt some conflict with another person. You have probably had some internal conflict with them or an actually an external conflict with them in which you've, you've disagreed or, or there's been some kind, of a, some kind of crossing of one another or harming each other and it has disrupted the harmony of your life, perhaps even the harmony of the church. We all know that this is the case. And so this is an important truth for us as we want to be a healthy local church and to continue growing and serving together is to remember how important it is that we agree in unity and to remember that it is a normal and it is a tragic thing that believers often do not. We're often in conflict with each other. There's something that has come between us and we want to hear and heed the words of Paul to Yodia and Syntyche, even though we don't know all those details, that what was on Paul's heart and mind and what Paul was leading them toward was harmony in the Lord, that they would be able to resolve their conflicts. And you know, our church is in, I think, a, a pretty good position, though we, we always struggle with these things like every church does, but because of our commitment to things like biblical counseling and our, our recognition of the importance of peacemaking together, those are tools that really can help us, but nevertheless, we expect that there will be conflict and difficulty. And we know that this is an important thing to concern ourselves with because the church lives in this delicate balance and harmony in order for us to fulfill our mission. In that way, I suppose the church is a little bit like a symphony where there are strong, gifted players, but in order for the symphony to really work and to fulfill its purpose and mission, there must be a precise harmony between them to function. The Berlin Philharmonic is one of the most widely regarded symphonies in the world or orchestras in the world. They're known as, as others of their caliber for exceptional precision among all of the players. The players have an ability trained to, to emit this rich sound and they have a kind of interpretive depth and art to their, to their music. There's a long history. The the Berlin Orchestra of Excellence under the leadership of, of renowned conductors. And even though you can have all of those gifted pieces in place, if those individual people cannot learn to live in harmony and agreement, 
then they cannot make the music that they are intended to make. That, that's a helpful reflection of what the church is like. I, I need more pictures like this, maybe you do, that I can think about what is the local church like. And the local church is like, in this way, an orchestra. We have so many gifted people that God has brought into our church. Everyone matters. Everyone has a place. Everyone has a way to serve. And when new people come, we're always trying with, with the help of, of, of other leaders like, like Roger Coville and, uh, and, and along with our, our elders to find places for everyone to serve. But nevertheless, we can have a church full of gifted, bright, mature Christians but if we cannot agree together in unity, we'll never be able to fulfill our purpose. This is important to see because our church is not an orchestra. Our church is something infinitely more important than an orchestra. All local churches need this harmony, like the orchestra, but for much bigger reasons. Because we're not an orchestra just making temporary music on the earth, but we are, as the Bible says, a family of eternal significance. What we're doing as a local church is not biding our time as Christians. It's not a thing that we use to accessorize our lives or simply a tool to help us get along but rather we are a family of believers as God continues to grow us. We don't, like an orchestra would and could, when players struggle, dismiss them from the orchestra and replace them. Of course, you don't do that in, in families. Now, that's obviously different than, than church discipline, which we practice in our church, because that has to do with, with whether... Uh, we belong or not, if we are believers or not. But as a family of believers, we must learn the difficult art of making music together as a church through our harmony. And we're reminded even of this basic truth that probably comes to mind for many of us in Mark chapter 3. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So it makes perfect sense why the Apostle Paul here in verse 2 and in many other places in his writings and, of course, all throughout the Bible, there is instruction and wisdom for us to learn how to live in harmony together. But it is something that we must insist on. And that's what Paul says here. I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. So the first application of this text to our lives and to our church might be simply this. We should make it our goal to promote harmony in our church. We can watch out for two things that are destructive to the harmony of our church, and they're these. One is peace faking. You know, when you have a conflict with someone and you choose to, to not address it, now that's different than overlooking it. There's a time when we're overlooking maybe some sin against us, but as it continues to fester and become a problem and, and to, our harmony continues to deteriorate, it must be dealt with, but so often we're not very courageous and we end up faking at peace. That is a tragic thing to happen in a local church like ours. Can you imagine what it would be like I hope this isn't true. I don't think it's true. 
But could you imagine what it would be like if in reality we all were sitting or standing here together and no one liked each other? We all just pretended that we liked each other? Now that is happening. It's not happening all over this room, but it is happening. It happens everywhere. It happens in every church. There are certain people here that you struggle to like. And what you do is you sort of pretend to like them or, or you see something in their life or, or there's some kind of conflict between you and you pretend that it's all okay just to keep things nice and easy and not rock the boat. That's peace faking. But that's not living in harmony, is it? That's just pretending at living in harmony. That would be like in the orchestra if a, a number of the players, as soon as the conductor began conducting, put their instruments to their mouths and didn't blow any air through them. They just pretended like they were in harmony with everyone else. Now, can you imagine if that spread throughout the orchestra? It would be just a couple of people maybe playing, maybe none at all. But instead, we want to watch out for this. We want to make sure that we are not peace-faking Christians, but that when there is some sense that I've lost harmony with another person in my church, I want to go to them. I will, maybe I need to ask for some help from a community group leader or one of the pastors or another trusted Christian friend in the church who can help us with this important. That's one thing that we need to watch out for. I don't know if that's what was going on here, but maybe. Or it could be another kind of dynamic of peace, which is peace-breaking. That's where when there is a conflict, we don't simply dismiss it or fake that everything is okay, but we go at it head on in a destructive kind of way and we break peace. We go after that person to teach them a lesson, to root them out. We go in harsh and hard rather than being peacemakers. And that's what we want to be. That's what Paul is urging. Euodia and Syntyche be peacemakers in the Lord. Do it for the Lord. Do it for yourselves. Do it for your church. It's a great reminder. It's a great truth for us as we think about what it means to be a church. We need to agree in harmony. Sometimes that's hard, but we must insist on it and pursue it. We want to be doing that. We want to be doing that more and more. We're not afraid of that in our church. We want to see peace made where needed. And here's the second truth that comes out of this text and it is the importance of helping one another. These sound like super basic things, don't they? But that's what we need. That's what I need in my life, and you do too. I need the basics. When I don't understand all the details, I don't have all the answers, I need these basics. Here, here's a basic of helping one another. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, indeed, true companion." Now, I'm feeling pretty inadequate here as a preacher because I don't know who the true companion is. There is this person that Paul is speaking to. It seems that he's um, understood, whether it's a, a group of people or whether he's referring to the whole church that's reading the letter, I don't really know. But he does say this. It's some, one of those things that's easy to overlook, but it's immensely important. I ask you also, help these women. Now, again, we don't know these prominent women, but we know that they needed help. They could not simply agree on their own. They needed other people to be involved. And that's why Paul is encouraging whoever one or more of these true companions are to lend the kind of help that's needed. 
for them to be able to agree in unity in order to have the harmony that was needed between them for the good of the church, for the good of their own souls, for the good of the gospel and for the glory of God. And what I'm reminded of when I read just this first little bit of verse 3 is I'm reminded again that the Christian life, as we saw last week, is a community project. It is something that is lived out as a family. And Paul knows this, and he desires that the believers do an important work of helping each other. Now, here's something interesting. The word help that he uses is a word that means to collaborate together, to work together. Another way that you could put that is to co-labor together. The kind of help Paul envisions in the life of the Philippian church is a co-laboring help. This is helpful uh, to see it this way because it reminds us that, that the help that's provided, that Paul is envisioning, makes us like a chain. It links believers together mutually as we are interconnected into one another's lives. And that's not the way we usually think about help, is it? Usually the way we think about help is there's someone who needs help and there's someone who can give it and it's always a one-way street. It's always just one person moving in this direction and that's sort of the end of it. The goal is just to solve the problem, bring the help, fix the harmony, whatever it may be. But in reality, Paul seems to be showing us a different kind of helping, a mutual helping, a helping that's more like a chain bringing people together, those who are giving and those who are receiving, and later, reversing the two. It is a helpful way for us to see the help we provide each other in the church, because again, typically, when we think about help, I think we think about it as a one-way street. You help another person, but that's not collaboration. Instead, collaboration is someone in need and someone who can help partnering together cheerfully. This probably requires some shift in our thinking about the way that we relate to each other when there's lack of harmony or when we need help. We need to adjust our thoughts on helping one another so that we could see it more like a chain or maybe this way, more like a two-way street. Because if we don't see it that way, if we see it as a one-way street, what ends up happening is it short-circuits the helping mechanism, which is at the heart of the harmony of the church. It short-circuits the whole system, and it leaves everybody wanting. Those who need help don't get it, and those who God intends to use to help don't give it. Okay, here's one way. I think it's, there are a number of ways it can go. Here's one way that it can go. Let's imagine that I need help. But because I don't want to feel helpless and I don't want to burden you, I refuse your help. When you offer to bring me some kind of help, food or, or a gift, or, or you offer to give your time and resources to me, I say, oh, no, no, no. Oh, I don't, I, no, I do not want you to do that. It is okay. I'll be okay. But do you see how that short circuits the helping work of the church? 
Now, when I say that kind of thing, the only thing I'm thinking about is me. I'm only thinking about how this helping scenario impacts me. And I don't want to be a helpless person. I don't want to appear weak. I don't want to, I don't want to feel like people are giving their time to me or they're having to, to show me some kind of pity. That's not what I want. And so I say no. But that's, that's the kind of thing that happens when you think about help as a one-way street. When you think about it as a two-way street and you see the dynamic of helping together, the co-laboring help, you don't say that when you need help. When someone offers you help, you say, that would be wonderful. Let's do it. Let's do it together. And you become the kind of person who cheerfully receives help. Do you see the difference? Do you see how the other way, the one-way street, short circuits the whole functioning of the local church? But if we change the way we think about it and we think about the help of the church as co-laboring together... It will help us bear the burdens of others, and it will help us welcome the help of others when we need it. I hope that that makes sense. I think this is a natural, uh, this is a, an important shift that all of us need. We all need to see the opportunity to be weak and to be helped together as we co-labor in our churches. This is at the center of what it means to be a Christian, that we, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. It's the picture of bearing a burden is similar to in Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, the main character, had a burden on his back, which was his sin. But it's the picture of bearing the burden on your back. We're to be bearing it uh, for one another. And Paul says in Galatians 6, thereby we fulfill the law of Christ. So if we were to be the kinds of people that would always refuse help when offered, we're short-circuiting the very law of Christ at work in us. And when we short-circuit that law of Christ in us, we short-circuit everything else in the church. What do we become? We just become individual players showing up to play our own tune and we never experience the harmony, and perhaps worse, we never experience the help. So let me encourage that if, you, if that's you, if that's resonating with you, it's kind of ringing in your heart or your ears a little bit, that you would consider with me how we could change our view of burden bearing, especially the bearing others do with you. To become the kind of person that welcomes the help of other people. Because you know that it's then that we're finding harmony and we're co-laboring, as Paul says here. The final key that we see this morning moves on to the last chunk of verse 3. And we see that in addition to the first two truths, to agree in unity and to help one another, we see the reason we see what Paul is really interested in seeing happen in the local church, and it's a beautiful, joyful thing, and it is to labor for the gospel with joy. That's a funny thing for me to say. I, I don't usually think of labor as being something that's joyful, but I'm trying to change that. 
And certainly here, when we talk about laboring for the gospel, it's not a burdensome kind of laboring, is it? It's actually a joyful kind of laboring. It's one that energizes us and and gives us life, and it is what Paul is concerned about. It's what he wants to see happen. It's what he's avoiding the short-circuiting function in the church so that by agreeing in unity and by co-laboring in helpful ways and moments, that the church would be able to labor for the gospel with joy. Listen to these final words uh, in the passage for this morning. Uh, Go back to verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, help these women, and he, he acknowledges what they've been doing, who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. One, he recognizes that this is what is big and bright about their lives. Euodia and Syntyche have been laboring with him for the gospel. They have this concern and this struggle in the cause of the gospel. And of course, he's concerned now that their harmony, this division, whatever it is, is going to short-circuit even this, that the gospel would not be as as potent in some way. The gospel would not be as clear and as big and bright as it should be. And so he says, they've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Again, here we don't know a lot. Who is Clement? I don't know. Who are the fellow workers? I don't know. I'm getting good at saying that. I don't know. I feel like I'm saying that every day. But it's okay, because that's not what's most important. What's most important is we see the heart of Paul's bond with them. What is it that bound Paul to Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and true companions and everyone else in the church? What is it that gave him such a desire to reach into their lives and to encourage and urge harmony? What is it that that motivated him to encourage them to help one another? And he was certainly always looking for ways to help other believers in what was most important. He wants to see the Christians of Philippi to continue cheerfully struggling for the gospel's sake. Now, why do I say cheerfully? I say cheerfully because Paul points to, in this verse the most cheerful thing of all. Can you find it? The very heart of the church, the heart of the struggle for the gospel's cause, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and the heart of true Christian happiness. Can you find it? Their names are in the book of life. There is nothing happier than knowing that your name is in the book of life. Think about Willy Wonka. Do you remember Willy Wonka? Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And Charlie, uh, Charlie Bucket, who wanted so badly to go to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, and, and Willy Wonka had distributed all of these tickets, and he hid them in chocolate bars around town. And, uh, and Charlie Bucket was, was super poor, and he couldn't afford any chocolate, but he came into some money, and he gets this ticket. And do you remember what happens? It's like burned into my memory. In the original movie... He is so shocked and delighted. There's nothing that could have made him happier. He sprints home. He won't let anyone stop him because he wants to tell his family about what had happened. It's this kind of cheerfulness, but even greater, perhaps exponentially greater, to have your name written 
in the book of life. Because we don't have our names written in the book of life because we open chocolate and we're randomly gifted a ticket. Your name is in the book of life because the God of grace and mercy who delights in you has written your name in the book. And it's amazing that he brings this up in the midst of this struggle because he's showing us that this is not an ordinary struggle. We have a joyful power to labor together for the gospel. It may help us just for a moment to consider what he might mean by the words that are translated uh, either struggle in my copy, my Bible, or they could be contend, or it could be labor, depending on how it's translated, but these words all work together. Just to remember what he's talking about, and why is it important for us to have harmony? Why is it important for us to help each other? Why is it important for us to be cheerful in the laboring that Christ has given to us? Well, here's first, no matter what word you use, whether it's struggle or contend or labor, that word means that there is a kind of burden bearing. There is a struggle going on. It is a difficult work. It's not something that's easily done. And therefore, we need God's help and we need one another. We need unity so that we function together as a church in the best of ways. But you also notice that this, these words also show us and remind us that it's a struggle because there's a conflict. Sometimes we refer to the conflict that we face as Christians in a three-part term, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. That has been a, a historic kind of Christian way of thinking about what we're up against. And it makes sense to us because we know that we're in a world that is under the curse of sin. It's this world system like we talked about in ABF this morning that doesn't align with the way God runs his kingdom. It's antithetical to his kingdom in many ways. But not only that, we also have this, this flesh. We have this sinful nature of ours, this remaining sin that we are daily contending with. It desires for us not to know the gospel. It desires for us not to live in harmony. And it is actually at work in us in a dynamic way to keep that from happening. On top of that, we also have a very real enemy, the Bible tells us, in the devil, in Satan, who is our tempter, who wishes for our destruction or at least for our distraction so that we would be taken off course. But last, we also see in this struggle that there is a joyful pursuit of the ultimate good, and it's a pursuit together, a struggle in the cause of the gospel, a struggle for good news, a struggle for good news. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're reminded of these words, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For the author of Hebrews, similar to the apostle Paul, there is this, this glowing fiery center to the Christian life, and it is the ultimate hope that says to you, your name is written in the book of life, that says to you, there's a day drawing near when Christ will return and all things will be put right, and you will go to heaven, which is happiness easy, as he rescues us from this world 
And therefore, we're reminded of how important it is for us to labor together for the gospel with joy. But just as it says in Hebrews 10, as we we come to a close here of this moment and transition in a moment to sharing in the Lord's Supper together, there's a key word in Hebrews 10, the verses I just read in verses 24 and 25, and it's the word consider. So this is the last application this morning, is that we should be as a church considering. You should be considering how you are stirring up love and good deeds among our brothers and sisters in our church to consider carefully. Think about that for a moment. Do you consider this? I know in my life, my life gets full of lots of things and, you know, uh, busyness and a lot of good, good things that God's given to us. And sometimes we just go days and we don't really even maybe think about each other consider each other, but here's the challenge of the text is the challenge is to consider together how we can do this. How will you stir up and how will you allow others to stir you up so that we can labor together for the gospel? There's nothing more important. There's nothing more joyful than for us to do this together. We have a lot going against us. There's a ton that we don't know. But God has given us all of the big truth that we need to move forward in these ways. And we're really delighted to share the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a a kind of picture of what Jesus has done for us by giving himself on the cross, his body being broken and his blood being shed for us. And that as we take it together as Christians... We are reminded that he belongs to us, that he is our our nourishment, and he is the one that gives us the ultimate hope of agreeing together, of helping each other, and of laboring for the gospel. I want to invite uh, the the deacons, uh, whoever is coming to help distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper, to go ahead and come forward as we transition to this time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, And as they're doing that, I just want to remind you of what you can be doing while you're waiting for these things to come around and even while you're holding them until we take them together is that you would consider. Use this as an opportunity to consider your own life. Consider the truths that you've heard this morning from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Consider maybe there's someone that you need to pursue some harmony with. Maybe there's some shift of your own mindset in the church of, of being a person who freely gives and freely receives help. And maybe there is some consideration that you could do of how you and I can work together so that we could labor with joy for the gospel, how we can stir one another up because we have been given everything that we need for life and godliness, and we're grateful for it. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, we ask you not to take from the Lord's Supper, but to use it as a time to pray and ask God I encourage you to ask God to give you everything that you need so that you could believe in him. And then once you have come to faith in Christ, then you'll be able to celebrate with us because you'll know that your name is in the book of life and that you can anticipate with us the coming day. Well, let me pray for us as we, um, as we uh, hand out the elements of the Lord's Supper and Pastor Isaac will come to officiate this time uh, before we sing again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus that changes us. And we are thankful that we don't need to know everything. 
We have big questions. There are lots of things that we struggle to understand about this life that you have caused us to live, and we pray that you would answer those as far as you, as far as you desire, but more than that, that you would nourish us on the big truths of our faith. Help us to take them seriously and to uh, work by your grace to labor together and to live in harmony together and to help each other this morning. We, we are thankful for the Lord's Supper and how it pictures for us exactly those three things, that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has given us harmony and, uh, and, uh, with you and has caused us to agree with you and that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has given us not only salvation or conversion, but he is giving us ongoing help by your Holy Spirit, and that his very life, death, and resurrection was the ultimate picture of contending or laboring and struggling for the cause of the gospel, because he himself is our good news, and we give you thanks this morning as we receive the bread and the fruit of the vine, and we rejoice together over what Christ has done for us. Help us to consider carefully these truths, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) 